You may be seated. I'll just tell you, it's a lot funner and easier to preach when I get to follow that, all right? I'm so thankful for Joshua and Chris and Peyton and Andrew and Colin and Ashton and Matthew and whoever else I left off, sorry, and the back of the booth we got uh, Ryan and Mark and just so thankful for these people giving of their time to lead us to the throne of God's grace while we corporately declare his excellencies. We're saying something about our God. That is our doxology, which we just sung, is rooted in and built on our theology. What we think when we think about God informs and influences and impacts what we say and sing about God. So I'm just so thankful for these folks who are loving us and leading us in this way. And we're going to continue to worship together, though not in song. You're welcome. We're going to unpack some scripture and see how the Lord uh, communicates with us this morning. I wonder who you might think is the most influential person in history, other than Jesus, <laughs> gotcha, other than Jesus, who really and truly is the most influential person in history? Or maybe, who is the most powerful person in history, other than Jesus? Now, you might hear that and go, well, what's the difference? Influence and power. Ah, super significant distinction and difference, and I want to talk about those for just a moment because it matters. You may have heard this before. It's certainly not original to me, but I agree with it. Perhaps you've heard this in a business kind of training, in a classroom environment, in a Sunday school lesson, a life group meeting, a BSF gathering, whatever it might be. But here's the thing. Influence is when you particularly and purposefully address the inner part of a human being trying to change their inner self and in so doing, if you are impactful and effective, you actually then change their behavior because you are addressing by influence their inner self, their external self changes in behavior. That's influence. Power, on the other hand, uses principally and primarily external factors to try to change the external life, to try to exchange or try to, to impact and change uh, behaviors so that perhaps over time, internal beliefs will begin to change. And so sometimes people will use things like government force or economic uh, weight or mass to try to impose power to change people. The problem is, as you can well discern just from me explaining it and describing it, power is never permanent. We see things like uh, foreign or failed governments who will try to use military or economic power to change people's behavior, and they might say the right things, but they're grumbling to themselves or their families or their neighborhoods, and it doesn't ever actually change anybody. But influence is when you address the inner life of a person and their beliefs are actually changed, and so then their behaviors are actually changed. Now, having said all that, other than Jesus, who would you say is the most influential person in history? We'll never know exactly and with absolute certainty, of course, but I would like to submit to you and to suggest that the most influential person in history, other than Jesus, is the Apostle Paul. Now that's fascinating because our world, culture, and society values largely power over influence. Paul had no power. He had no assets. He's probably about that tall. He was bald-headed, bald -headed, bow-legged, unibrow, big nose, and drippy-eyed. Now, that's hard to be an influencer when you look like that. When you're Insta-Paul, your Instagram is not going to have a whole lot of activity. Not super powerful, but unbelievably influential. Here's a guy who was raised in a geography that had the third largest library in antiquity who was a child of means, who was a Jew of Jew, a Pharisee of Pharisees, who was tutored at the feet of Gamaliel, the greatest rabbi, it is said, in Jewish history, who was an enemy of the cross of Christ, who was literally tracking down Christians legally to bring them back and put them to death in Jerusalem. And yet, the gospel got a hold of him. Jesus influenced him, and the Apostle Paul sets off on a ministry 
of the gospel. What is ministry? Ministry, simply put, is how a church accomplishes her purpose. To give and give and give and give and give the gospel. What is the gospel? The good news, the great story, the awesome announcement of what God has done in Christ to redeem us to himself and to one another. The purpose of the church, the mission of the church, is simply to make disciples of Jesus, to lead people in a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. And so, when you talk about influence, who more than the Apostle Paul, who wrote 13 epistles in our Bible, who planted numerous churches on various missionary journeys, who died in hiddenness and obscurity, not even on the TikToks, but he was impactful at changing people's inner lives so that their external lives were eternally changed. Paul's ministry mattered. And so that's our big idea for the morning is that ministry matters. And so having established that, let's talk about ministry matters. If you've got your Bibles, please turn to the little epistle of 1 Thessalonians. We began looking at 1 Thessalonians last Sunday morning in our time together. Just want to give you a quick review and a reminder. 1 Thessalonians, written by the Apostle Paul, it's a person who's written to some people for a purpose, at a place, at a period. <laughs> He's on his second missionary journey. The Apostle Paul is in what is today Turkey. And he's got great ambitions for the gospel. He's trying to get to Ephesus. And so he gets up and he's going to go to Ephesus. But the Spirit of God tells him no. Interesting, Acts 16. He says, fine, no problem. I'll go north. I'll go to Bithynia. The Spirit of Jesus says no. Okay, fine, no problem. Paul takes a nap. While he's asleep, he has a vision. And a man from Macedonia says, please, come over here and help us. Ugh, Macedonia, that's Gentile country. That's Greece. That means that is Europe. That's Western civilization. Paul and his companions, Timothy and Silas, they go north. They pick up Dr. Luke in Troas. They sail across. They go to Philippi, down by the river, and they encounter a women's prayer meeting. They encounter Lydia. Then they meet a demon-possessed slave girl, and then they meet a suicidal Philippian jailer. Those are the first three converts in Western civilization, the first church plant in Europe. Paul gets beaten with rods. He's imprisoned, locked in stocks. God frees him. They have to leave at some point. They go through a town called Amphipolis. They go through Apollonia. They don't stop there. We're not really told why. And they make it to Thessalonica. More than likely because in Thessalonica there is a synagogue. A synagogue is a gathering place of Jews. To have a synagogue, you must have at least 10 Jewish men that agree with one another. <laughs> Apparently, there weren't at least 10 in agreement in Philippi, nor in Amphipolis, nor in Apollonia. And so Paul goes to Thessalonica. This is probably the second letter that Paul writes in the early 50s AD. Galatians would have been a little bit earlier, right at the end of his first missionary journey. He goes on this journey. He finally has to leave Thessalonica. He goes to Berea. He goes down to Athens. He's in Athens all by himself. He goes down to Corinth with Silas or Silvanus. He sends Timothy back up to get a report from the Thessalonians. Timothy comes back, gives them the report, and he writes this little letter. Let's pick up reading 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. He says, For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. Now, I don't want you to miss just the, the occurrence of pattern here. He's going to say to them, you know, you yourselves know, you are reminded, you know this, y'all know this, y'all remember, you know. Six times he's going to tell them what they know. Six times. He's going to remind them of what happened. Why? Why is it such a big deal? It's actually an interpretive key to the chapter. Paul is trying to establish the integrity of their gospel message because ministry matters. Apparently, Timothy comes back, meets Paul in Corinth, and says, hey, Paul, they got a lot of questions. In fact, there's a whole bunch of people that are saying all kinds of nasty stuff about you, about us, and they have some questions. They're thinking that maybe you're just a traveling itinerant philosopher some sort of fly-by-night snake oil peddler, they've got questions. And Paul says, oh, no, no, no. And he begins to write, y'all know, you know, you remember. Now, what was the deal? Paul would go into a town where there was a synagogue, and that was his practice. That was his pattern. What would he do? He would go to synagogue, and he would listen. And then he would begin to be invited to speak because he was obviously a learned man of letters. And he would talk about the plight 
of the people of Israel. And they would all say, mm, yes, amen, brother. Yeah, that's right, that's right. And he would talk about in the scriptures that God had promised to send Messiah, Mashiach, the son of man from Daniel chapter seven, the son of man from the Psalms, the son of man from Isaiah. And they'd say, yes, amen, yes, we are ready for Messiah. We are tired of having this Roman boot upon our necks. And they liked this Paul. And so they would invite him back on another Sabbath. Paul would get up to speak again and he would say, the Messiah, the promised awaited Messiah, have I got news. God has sent him. He has come and I have met him and I've seen him. Messiah has come. And they would say, what? We don't have word of this. The, 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 the internet must be down. What's going on? We haven't heard about this. Paul said, no, it's true. I've got word. He has come, but it isn't what we expected. He didn't come as conquering king. He came as the suffering servant from Isaiah 53. And they'd go, Wait a second. That's right, Paul would say. Messiah lived and he breathed, but he died and he was buried. But he rose again and he is alive. And their eyebrows would raise. And they'd say, whoa, this is big news. How come we haven't heard about this? And Paul would say, well, because you're in Europe. And they'd say, you know what? We want you to come back a third Sabbath. And so the following Sabbath, Paul would come back and he'd say, it's true, brothers. I've seen him. He's alive. Messiah has come. They put him to death. He became the sin of the world. He offers his righteousness. He's alive for all of Israel. And they would say, amen, yes, yes, yes. And then Paul would go, oh, and it gets better. Rejoice with me, brothers, because he's also available to Gentiles. And then their fists would match their eyebrows. <laughs> and they would pick up rocks to stone him and beat him the one thing they could not abide was anyone that claimed that their Messiah was also for the Gentiles. And so a riot ensues in Thessalonica, Acts 17, and they have to leave. They escape by the skin of their teeth because a guy named Jason posts a bail bond. In fact, assuring and securing that Paul can't come back anytime soon. And so they begin to wonder, hey, why was Paul even here? And the Jews and the opponents who were Gentiles begin to tell these few converts, probably less than 30, hey, that guy, he's a shyster. He's a snake oil peddler. He's an itinerant philosopher. You can't trust him. He just came through and he left. Where is he now? Where is this Paul? And they begin to hear it. Now, that's amazing to me. I have a tendency to believe that if somehow the Apostle Paul were to come to Bethel downtown, and to spend three plus weeks with us, we would maintain and, and manage every syllable that he ever spoke. But that's just not reality. Our wisdom leaks. Our memories fade. If you don't know that, get married. <laughs> They'll tell you. They'll remind you. If you don't know that wisdom leaks, have children. You'll watch it like it's in an aquarium. Like, I just told you yesterday. What were you thinking? This is all hypothetical, of course. It happens to us. And so Paul writes to remind them, don't you guys remember how it was when I was with you? Listen to what he says. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 now, verse 2. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, that's already the second time, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. Shysters snake oil peddlers, itinerant philosophers. Are you kidding me? You guys know. You remember how we came in? Do you remember? We had been stripped naked and beaten publicly with metal clubs, still oozing and bruised and beaten from Philippi. They hit us with metal clubs. They locked us naked in the dark of the dark dungeon in stocks. That was torture. If you left your legs in those stocks too long, the bones would literally begin to break. You think that was glorious? You think that was to get some sort of esteem? We barely sloughed in and we began to preach boldly despite the conflict. And that was very different from the itinerant philosophers, from the snake oil peddlers and the orators that would come through. In that day and in that culture, the orators would come through. They would pump iron and get all grizzled and chiseled and swole like pastors do today. And they would... They would that was a quick laugh from all of you. First service, same chuckle. I don't know what's going on there. They would get all physically fit and swole, and they would jump in a big bucket full of tar and strip all the hair off their bodies, and they would stand in the square at midday sun while the sun was hitting them, and they would orate as though a voice from the gods. 
And they would gather to themselves all sorts of influence, sort of, using words of hyperbole, speaking on behalf of the gods. And they would surround themselves with the financially uh, affluent of the town to make their money. And Paul says, you think that was us? I got drippy eyes. I had open wounds. I'm bow-legged, bald-headed, unibrow, big-nosed. Not here because of my looks. You remember how this whole thing goes down, he wants to remind them. So he tells them in verse 3, For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. Three quick shots talking about how much ministry matters. It doesn't come from error. It's a strange word. The word is planeros. Our message doesn't come from planets. What does he mean? Just wandering nonsense. That's what they thought of as the planets. Just these wandering patterns in the night sky that had no rhyme nor reason. Paul says, that's not our message. It had purpose. It had precision. It was for you, people. It wasn't not just this wandering nonsense. Our message, he says in verse 3, was not out of impurity. Now, that's a very technical term. It has very specifically to do with sexual immorality. Why? Because all of the traveling itinerant philosophers, orators would come through like crazed conventioneers. Their reputations were horrible. They were debauched and they were depraved because, let's face it, they would come through. They were swollen, cut, and chiseled and all oiled up. And they knew they were only going to be there for a matter of days. And they would gather financial means to themselves. And they would practice all sorts of lewd, debauched activities. And then they would move on. And Paul says again, uh, yeah, yeah, that didn't happen here. That was not our message. That's not at all what we were about. And you guys remember this. Because apparently they were beginning to listen to the false accusations and the murmurs and the chit-chat. Now, can that happen? Of course it can. And so this is a good reminder for us that when that sort of murmuring and gongus mossing and gossip happens, we have to be reminded of what is true. It's a great model for ministry because ministry matters. Our message was not from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. The idea of deceiving here is treachery unto betrayal or treason. We weren't trying to set you up for a fall to take your funds. Absolutely, we were to give the gospel of God, the good news from God himself. Verse 4, But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God, who tests our hearts. Paul says, not once, but twice. Hey, God's our witness. God is the one who tests us. If you have any questions, you should ask God if what we're saying is true. In other words, Paul says, I am completely comfortable and confident that the message I gave to you was true. And I can say that God himself approves our hearts and our message. Now that is the recipe for a good night's sleep. And you have no worry whatsoever that what you have preached or taught and that God fully approves your message and your heart. Wow. And let me just tell you, I feel that. Every single Sunday about 12, 15 p.m., I start going, oh, no, oh, no, here come the plagues. Or something. It's a big deal to stand up and in some capacity say, thus says the Lord. But Paul and his colleagues were doing precisely that. Verse 5. For we never came with words of flattery. What is flattery? In its rare, raw form, flattery is nothing more than an attempt to exert power. Flattery is using words to manipulate the behavior of another person, even if those words are true. You're exerting power to change their behavior in some way. Paul says, we never did that. We loved you so much, we said hard things. We love you so much, we gave you the truth. We didn't use words of flattery, as you know, third time. Nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. We were not there with our hands open, not even close. Verse 6. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. We were not trying to please people. We were not trying to be profitable. That would have been a lot easier. We could have turned some coin. We didn't flash our ministerial collars. We didn't 
flash our business card. We didn't even snap the shoulder snaps on our members-only jackets. We didn't flaunt our robes. We didn't have any of that. We were inglorious for the glory of God. We could have done all those things to garner some, some notoriety, some coin, but you know, you saw, you were with us, you remember. We didn't do any of that. Instead, rather than being for profit, they were paternal. They were pastoral. They were familial. Listen to verse 7. But we were gentle among you. Do you remember who this is? Saul of Tarsus, who was literally dragging Christians back in chains from Damascus and putting them to death. We were gentle among you, he says. Like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. Now, I don't know from experience, but I have been in proximity of a nursing mother. And from what I could gather, it's an exhausting endeavor. And it's not glamorous. But it is one of those scenes in the created order that is gentle. It is lovely. It is beautiful. But it's taxing. And here's what I know, and here's what Paul is referencing. You have to be taking care of yourself to be an effective nursing mother for the sake of the one who is being nursed, who is being taken care of. And so the, the communicator of the gospel must be intentional and diligent to be devotional, to focus on the glories and the grandeurs of the gospel himself or herself so that they can have that which they can share, that they can be squeezed out, wrung like a washcloth, you might say, and all that comes out is gospel, gospel, gospel. One of my old heroes in the faith, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, old Baptist, British preacher, would say, I fill myself up with fuel all week long, and then on Sundays, I set myself on fire, and my congregation watches me burn. Wow, that's convicting. I just eat a lot of nachos. <laughs> like a nursing mother, we were gentle among you. Paul's going, ministry matters. Too much was at stake for us to be shysters or charlatans or itinerant philosophers or orators. No, we were there for you, with you, all about you, Paul says. Verse 8, so, being affectionately desirous of you. This, I, can I just tell you, this doubled me over this week. This is the Apostle Paul, hard-charging, brilliant writer, orator. And yet, you know what he says? I'm just so in love with y'all. No, not romantically, of course. But this Jew of Jews, Pharisee of Pharisees, tutored under Gamaliel, is just, he just totally fell for these European Macedonian Christians, these eternal siblings. Listen to how he feels about them. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, the good news about what God has done in Christ to redeem us to himself and to one another, the message, yes, but more than that, our very selves, he says, but also our own selves, our own psuche, our own souls. We gave you the message. I gave you the man, everything. I held nothing back, our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. Can I just remind you? He was with them maybe three plus weeks. Now, it's convicting. I, I would tell you, that 8 billion people on the planet are all just about equally desirous to be that desired. And for whatever reason, we've sought out that acceptance and that affection from a little six-inch screen and shocking shock, it's not happening. But this is the desire of the world, to be so desired. Paul's only within three and a half weeks, and he's like, I just, I loved you so much. And I think they felt it. I think they knew it. I think they were beginning to forget what they knew, but they knew that he loved them. Now, that's an incredible model for ministry. You see, ministry matters. Verse 9, for you remember, brothers, see, he's reminding them. You remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. It's not our message. This message comes from God. It is his good news for you. We know when Paul was on his third missionary journey, he's in Ephesus for about three plus years. While he's in Ephesus, he would wake up early. He would 
work, making tents, not easy job, cutting leather, tanning leather, sewing leather, all that kind of stuff. And then he would teach all throughout the heat of the day in the school of Tyrannus, and then we'd put away his teaching kits, and he would work all until bedtime, and he would sleep, and he would wake up again, and he would work, and then he would teach, and he would work, and then he would sleep. Early to bed, early to rise, pray like crazy and sermonize. That's what we do. That's what Paul was all about. And so we get the idea he's doing the same kind of thing already in Thessalonica. Only there three and a half weeks, but he's like, I am not here to get your money. I'm going to start making tents immediately. He's only in Thessalonica three and a half weeks, and he's already getting up early, working, and then teaching them, and then working into the late hours, eating, going to bed, and repeating. Exactly the opposite of what the itinerant philosophers and the charlatan shysters would do. You guys remember, right? He's telling the people of Thessalonica. This is how I was amongst you. Verse 10, you are witnesses, <laughs> he reminds them, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. Now, this is one of those verses that always makes me super cringy to have to be a pastor and preach a verse like that. And Paul goes, you know how I'm always, 100% of the time, holy and righteous and blameless. No one's ever actually accused me of that or any of the three at any time, ever. And yet, he's talking about his intentional conduct with them. No hidden motive, no manipulation, no flattery. We pretty much understand what holy means, sinless. What righteous means, it's the, the holiness of God rolling forward. Blameless is this wonderful word. It's a legal term, amemptas in the Greek. It means nothing can be held against you. Nothing on your record between you and God, nothing on your record between you and anybody else. Another great recipe for a good night's sleep. Blameless, nothing held against you. This is why Jesus will say, before you worship at temple, leave your offering and go straighten things out with your brother, either physiological, biological, or spiritual. Be blameless, have nothing that might potentially hinder your giving of the gospel because so much is at stake. Ministry matters. He continues, verse 11, for you know, like a father with his children. So we've talked about being like a nursing mother. Now he's gonna describe that he was like a father. And I love this. It's so convicting, but it's so convincing. This is a great model for ministry. It's a great model for pastoring. It's a great model for fatherhood. It's a great model for leadership. Listen to what he says in verse 12. We exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you. This is so great. These three words, like a father, here's what I was, not to try to garner attention to myself, I exhorted you. The idea is to, to be a visionary, to say, that's the mountain. Come on, son, that's the peak of the mountain. That's where we're going. Here's how we're going to get there. That's exhortation. He would encourage them. I'm right along with you, parakaleo, to come alongside and invite on the ride. Come on, Thessalonian Christians. Don't you know whose you are? Don't you know who you are? Don't you know what he speaks over you? And then he perhaps would even sing Zephaniah 3, that God is singing songs over you right now. He would encourage them, and then he would charge them. The word is martyria, where we get our word for witness. He would link up at the hip and the shoulder and the ear and say, we're going together. Now that's good fathering. That's good pastoring to point out the peak and say, that's where we're going. We're going to do this together. And I'm going with you to essentially to hold a crown over their head until such time as they grow up into it and it fits. That's what Paul was doing for the Thessalonians. That's what fathers do for their sons and daughters. That's what leaders do. That's what community leaders do. We hold crowns over their heads until such time as God raises them up to fit them. I was like a gentle mother. We were like a father who encouraged and exhorted and charged you. We exhorted each of you and encouraged you and charged you what? To walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Here's the hinge of the chapter. Super quickly, Paul loves to use this expression, to walk in a manner worthy of God or walk in a manner worthy of the calling of God. He will say it in Ephesians 4. He'll say it in Colossians 1. He'll say it in Galatians 5. He loves this idea of the walk. The Greek term is peripateo. It's where we get our word for peripatetic. 
There once was a man named Socrates. Not true. It was actually Socrates. Socrates, some 300 years before the coming of Christ, established the academy for the lecture halls in which people would come and they would learn and he would lecture and they would ask questions and he would answer and they had this Socratic method. Socrates had a student named Plato. Plato expands and he increases the academy and it's a lecture hall where people would come and hear Plato's musings, hear his orations and hear his writings. But then Plato has a student named Aristotle. Aristotle was a bit of a rebel, had a motorcycle, leather jacket, that whole thing, listened to bad 80s music. Aristotle's a little bit off on his own tune. Aristotle said, we're leaving. We're going to leave the lecture hall and we're going to go on a walk. And he rebranded the academy, academia, to the walk, the peripateo. And so Paul uses this word on purpose. It's a philosophy of life. I want your philosophy of life, he says in Colossians and Galatians and here in 1 Thessalonians. I want your walk, your whole philosophy, your sphere of existence, I want it to be worthy of the call of God. Whoa, how are we doing? <laughs> well, to answer that question fairly and honestly, we have to understand what worthy means. It's a strange word. We don't really know how else to translate it. Paul says, I want your walk, your philosophy of life. This is what I am encouraging and exhorting and charging you is that your walk would be worthy. Worthy is the Greek term axios. It has the idea of evenly divided, perfectly balanced. It's where we get our word for axis. The earth spins around on an axis right through the middle. Or when you chop wood and you hopefully divide the wood, you use an axe because it divides things in half. What is Paul saying over and over again? I want your sphere of existence to be perfectly balanced. What you say you believe is matched exactly and in perfect balance with how you behave. Now that's a walk that is worthy. You're not warbling. You're not out of kilter, out of spilkus, as my dad would say. You are walking worthy, axios, balance. What you say you believe is matched exactly by what you behave. And Paul says, we exhorted you, we encouraged you, we charged you to live just like that. You guys know this. You remember this. All those accusations you're hearing about our ministry is false. This is what we charged you to. We'll pick up speed here. Verse 13. And we also thank God constantly for this that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. Well, I mean, isn't it? <laughs> Did you know there is literally, statistically proven quantifiably, no other ingredient in existence that has the transformative capabilities as the word of God. Nothing, not service, not mission trips, not being nice, not eating well. And I just wonder, because it hit me this week again, all over again. It really did. When's the last time you were actually thunderstruck that this is the word of God? It presupposes then that there actually is a God, that we are not alone in the universe simply schlepping out an existence until we take a dirt nap. This book means that there is a God and that he is good and that he is communicating. He has not stayed hidden. For many of us, the word of God is a King James coffee table book that collects dust or it's inhabiting 13 apps on your phone that you haven't looked at in so long the apps have disappeared and you don't know why. It's the word of a sovereign God who is good, who loves us. And it is at work within you, he tells them. Well, isn't it? It's a convicting question for us as well. Verse 14, for you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered. Oh, wait, what? Wait a minute, we believe the gospel. Isn't everything supposed to be awesome from here on out? Nope. No, generally speaking, when you become a Christian, things get hard. Durr. So let me just tell you, you're experiencing hardship, Thessalonians. Praise God. It means it's happening. Just like the churches in Judea back in Jerusalem and Antioch were being persecuted, so too are you. That means it's happening. What is God's will for your life? That you be saved, that you be sanctified, that you serve, and that you suffer. Sorry, worst billboard ever. That's the plan because he is worthy of that. You've suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. These Jews, he's going to lay the blame squarely at their feet. 
who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind. How? By hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them at last. Paul does blame the nation of Israel for rejecting Jesus as Messiah and King. He also lays the blame on the Romans. He also lays the blame on all human beings for applying their sin to the cross of Christ. So no, Paul is not anti-Semitic. Paul is a Semite. He is a Jew. He's never gotten over it. He's still a Jew. Now he says, they are filling up their wrath. What is Paul talking about? It's very similar to the language that God will use with Abraham in Genesis 15, that the wickedness of the Amorites has not yet ripened. Judgment is coming. And so some believe that was that talking about the fall of the temple in AD 70 under the Romans, or is that the tribulation period as yet to come? And I would say, uh-huh. And I don't know exactly which, but it's probably both and. And so it's serious. All right? Now we'll land this plane Verse 17, but since we were torn away from you, brothers. It's the only time this word's ever used in the New Testament. It's not just torn away. This is how desirous Paul was for these people. Since we were orphaned by you. That's how he felt. When he had to leave Thessalonica, it was like he was being orphaned, like he was losing family. That's how deeply desirous he was for them. Maybe we don't think rightly enough about Paul and his deep, deep affection for his people. We were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time. In person, not in heart. Oh, I had to leave bodily, but in spirit, I was with you. We endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, he never, ever anywhere else mentions himself in the middle of a letter. Always at the beginning as an introduction, but never in the middle unless he's responding to a false accusation. I, Paul, I tried, and again, and again, at least three separate times, I tried to get to Thessalonica, but I couldn't. Why? Satan hindered us. Now that's wild. That's weird. How did Paul know that it was Satan? You might remember back in Acts 16, Paul wanted to go to Ephesus. The Spirit of God said no. So Paul says, I'll go to Bithynia. The Spirit of Jesus says no. Now he wants to go to Thessalonica, and Satan is effective in hindering him. That's instructive. How does Paul know the difference? Short answer, I don't exactly know. But the context of the book of Acts and these other epistles helps us to know that Paul, Saul of Tarsus, an apostle of Christ Jesus, representing the death-proof king, <laughs> I love this so much, he has to ask Timothy and Silas and Luke, what do you guys think is going on? Why can't we go back? And they talk, they stop, and they talk, and they pray, and they stop, and they talk, and they pray, and they go, this is a hindrance from the enemy. We can't go. And they all agree that this is from the enemy. Whereas in Acts 16, it's pretty clear it's from the Spirit of God and the Spirit of Jesus. Not this time. Oh, the importance of a leader in ministry, whether you're in Sunday school, BSF, life group, Sunday school, pastoring, whatever, that you would have the opportunity to be surrounded with people that can tell you hard, true things in prayer. The wise counsel of others is priceless. I don't know exactly, but here's what I want you to know. Paul wanted to be with them. They wanted to be with Paul. And so that was the precise thing that their enemy hindered. Do you understand that? The thing that your enemy wants more than anything else is not to ring your front doorbell with a pitchfork and cloven hoof and a cape and go blah, blah, blah. You'd probably spot that one. But on a Sunday morning, when you decide one more time in a row, I think I'll just attend Bedside Baptist this morning. <laughs> Please, must we all be reminded that that is spiritual warfare. The thing that the believer needs and should be desirous of most is other believers. And Satan is effective. Now, that's terrifying. We have an enemy, Peter says, who's like a roaring lion looking for whom he will devour. And he never attacks the dead center of the herd. He always picks off those at the back who are still in bed as we speak. God rest their souls. I'm kidding. They'll be fine. They'll be fine. We'll see them next week. Verse 19, for what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting? <laughs> before the Lord Jesus at his coming. Now, I mentioned this last week. I want to say it again. At the end of each of the five chapters of Thessalonians, 
there's a mention, a declaration, a broadcast that Jesus is coming back. All five chapters say he's coming again. And Paul says, but listen, let me just tell you guys, when I see Jesus again, you know what I'm looking forward to more than anything else? You know what my joy, my crown, the word crown is Stephanos. It's the victor's crown that you would win if you ran a race and won it. You know what I'm looking forward to most? You might assume and think it's Jesus. It isn't. This is the shock of the epistle. What does he say? But what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? <laughs> it's you. It's you. Now that's incredible. For you are our glory and joy. This person loves Jesus. This person loves Jesus. This per- great, great. That's kind of become an in vogue thing to say in Christendom in the 21st century. Do they love Jesus' people? This is the Apostle Paul. When Jesus comes back, you know what? I mean, the guy spent three years with him in the deserts of Arabia being equipped and instructed. You know what he wants more than anything? Is to shove the Macedonians forward and go, look, Jesus, look at them. Look at them. Because they are his glory and his joy. What is joy? The outcome of fulfillment. You hear that? Church, fulfillment, believe it or not, it comes from one Another, that's biblical bedrock truth. You see, ministry matters. Let me land this and apply this very quickly if I can. A couple quick principles that we get from 1 Thessalonians 2 that are very pertinent for what we're doing here as a church. First point goes like this. Trust is the lifeblood of the church. Trust is the lifeblood of the church. Trust is the stuff that flows from one part of the church throughout and to the rest. And if there's a blockage anywhere for any reason, the entire church begins to feel it. Here's what's astonishing. In 2021, the Google Corporation, and in 2022, the Apple Corporation, separately, launched an enterprise-wide study and investigation as to what makes them tick, what makes them work, why are they better, why are they winning. You know what they found? It's amazing. Not innovation, not customer service, not strength of product line, not shareholder equity, not stock price. Organizational trust. These are secular companies that have finally caught up with Scripture. If the organization and enterprise had trust flowing throughout the organization, they would thrive. If they didn't, everything else began to suffer. Surprise! God knows what he's talking about. Trust is the lifeblood of the church. Now, here's the deal. Here's the reality. If you've spent any engaged time in a church, then you've seen it, or you are seeing it, or you're about to see it. (laughs) Some conflict is going to arise, and people are going to begin to distrust one another. It might be people participating in one particular ministry, but more often than not, it's going to happen between different people who are doing their very best to deal with either power or influence or both, usually at some varying degree or mixture. And as Satan would have it, we all know this, unfortunately, There is no hurt like church hurt. And then hurt people hurt people. Yay! Which is one of the reasons many people avoid the church altogether. And Satan wins. But we risk. We re-engage. What are we supposed to do when that sort of thing happens? Not if, but when it happens. We take our direction from the example and the teaching of the Apostle Paul right here in this text. Quite simply, it goes like this. Number one, how do you deal with with a a shaky or a shimmering trust? Uh, The introduction of distrust or mistrust, perhaps. Number one, (laughs) give your heart. Risk it, risk it, risk it. Give your very soul. It might take a bruising. It might take a beating. That's okay. There's all eternity to heal and to give glory to God for his grace and his mercy. Give your heart. Be willing to invest your very soul and pour your affection and attention into the lives of people that have become a part of this family and this fellowship. Love them for their good and for God's sake. God is worth it, and he happens to believe that they are all worth it as well. That is walking worthy. But the second is the different side of the same coin. Give your heart... Keep your head. Sometimes Christians are good about giving their heart, but they lose their minds. 
No, no, no. Give your heart, keep your head. We've got an interesting interplay here. Give your heart, but keep your head. It means we walk wisely and we understand the times like the men of Issachar did in the Old Testament. And we make spiritually discerning judgments about all things, like Paul says in Corinthians. doesn't mean we judge or condemn others. It means we rightly apply our minds. And just like Paul, when we operate like this, it's okay to tell people, that's precisely what we're doing. Hey, you remember this. You're beginning to suspect that I, X, or Y, or Z. But you know, you've seen, you've watched, you've been with. It's okay to remind people of what is true. Because when Paul or someone else says, I'm giving my very self and soul into this, and I want to be spiritually discerning about all that God is doing, it establishes a sphere of trust in which ministry thrives and the gospel goes forward. And I invite you and encourage you and exhort you and charge you to try it. And there's even grace and mercy for when we get it wrong, which we all do. Second point goes like this. Love one another like Jesus. Love one another like Jesus. Now, it's intentionally vague. Do I mean that we're to love one another like Jesus loves each of us? Or do I mean that we are to love one another like we love Jesus? And the answer is yes. Absolutely. To really love the groom, you must love Jesus the bride. Did you know that? To really get the groom, you have to get the bride. If you say for some reason, hey, Eric, I like you, okay, but I have no use for Susan, well, I got to put my hands on you. <laughs> and, and, and it's not going to go well for either of us. No, 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 no. Do you understand how much Jesus loves the bride? And look at the cross. If you begin to forget how much he loves the bride, my God, my God, why has he not forsaken us? Love one another like Jesus. Probably the great and glorious surprise in the New Testament and in the gospel itself. Over and over again, Jesus instructs people in the love of God. He says, love God. You know what that looks like? Loving one another. Love God. You know what that looks like? Hug a neck. Love God. You know what that looks like? Tater tot casseroles. Love God. 48 times in the New Testament we're commanded to love one another. 48. Every time we are directed to love God, it always translates practically into the personal. It's an astonishing thing. Does not mean we only have to get to love one another on social media. No. There must be an intentionality as we encounter and interact with one another to give our very lives to one another as though Jesus was loving him through you because he is. You get it? When you withhold your affection and attention to someone else in the body of believers, you are crimping off the affection and attention that Jesus has for somebody. Ministry matters. Third point, final, this is how we close. Ministry is worship. When we give the gospel, ministry is worship. The central thrust of 1 Thessalonians 2 is that idea where Paul reminds them and reaffirms to them the exhortation, the encouragement, the charge to walk worthy of the call of God on their lives. It's that word worthy that is literally the stuff of worship, of worship for the last couple thousand years and it will be for eons into eternity and justifiably so. As we get to the end of our Bible, there's the book of Revelation. First chapter is all about the beatific vision of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. The second and third chapter are all about the letters of that Jesus written to the churches. But then in chapter 4, we're transported into the very throne room of God. And we see the heavenly hosts. And they're all gathered around in heaven. And there is no sin. And everyone votes the same. And they drive the same vehicle. And it's wonderful! It's really not what it's about. But there is praise, and they are going on and on in Revelation 4 in the throne room with these incredible sights and sounds, praising God for his power and might in creation. And then in chapter 5, the scene pivots ever so slightly. And it's time to talk about redemptive re-creation. Because sin has come into the world, and there's an acceptance and an acknowledgement that the created order has been corrupted and corroded. What will God do? And so we're told that God presents a scroll with seven seals on it. And in the scroll are the truths that will effect redemption for all of mankind. 
And John, as he's narrating this, looks. And he goes, well, that's it. That's it. we got to get that scroll open. That's the thing. That's what we have to have because I'm so sick of the pain and the misery and the death and the suffering. we got to get the scroll open. But he looks. And in heaven and on earth, he finds nobody worthy to open the scroll. Nobody is axios. Nobody for their entire life in thought, word, and deed was perfectly balanced where what they said they believed was actually perfectly practiced in what they behaved. Nobody. And so John says, I began to weep uncontrollably. It's all gonna come down to this. We're gonna get so close that nobody can do this. He's literally having an existential crisis. And then the text says that an elder says, hey, weep no more. Probably Tom. Tom, hey, hey, stop crying. I hate crying. Stop crying. Because that guy is worthy. <laughs> and all of heaven face plants. You see, because there is one who walks worthy of the call of God on his life. Thought, word, deed, 24-7, always perfectly what he said he believed was exactly how he behaved. And this is the gospel. People in Paul's day were cynical. They heard good news and they said, ah, hold on a second. Sounds like you're selling steak knives. No, no. It really is good news. That one guy is worthy, perfectly balanced, and he is offering you to be seen and found in him so that when God sees you, he sees you already now as walking the walk that is worthy because he sees you in Christ. Don't you see who you are, Christian? You're from the future, living in the present because of what Christ did in the past. And so Paul and I want to hold this crown over your heads. Say, walk worthy, because he walked worthy. Stop trying hard. Try hard not to try hard. Look at Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for Jesus who is worthy, who was and is and is to come. And Father, I pray that if there's anyone here this morning who is slowly schlepping to their finish line with their fingers crossed, that you will persuade them that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that Messiah did come, and that he had to suffer and die, but he is alive, and he has ascended, and he will return, and he will reign forevermore. And that he is offering his completed scorecard of worthy walking to each of us who will receive and believe. If you've never actually understood or been persuaded about that, have never believed that, I'm going to encourage you to agree, to believe it, to be persuaded, and to talk with someone you know or love or trust about that. Me, one of our staff, an elder, a deacon, a ministry leader, a family member, somebody. For the rest of his father, May we not merely schlep through life, but like Paul has said, may we be engaged in gospel ministry because it matters. Thank you for loving us. Help us, Father, to love you and to love one another. We pray all this in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen.